Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. If you have a copy of God's Word, open your Bibles, turn on your phones, find a copy of it somewhere. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to stand together as we read God's Word. And so if you just sat down, you might want to stand back up because we're going to read God's Word together from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are coming back to our series in 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to just dive right in. You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll read verses 1 down through verse 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please ask the past. Those who fail to learn from history, Winston Churchill once said, are doomed to repeat it. Ask the past. Right now, a lot of people are asking the past. Edward Gibbon wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire in 1777, and it's again selling like hotcakes as people try to understand our day and age. People are taking a serious look at history to try to understand what can we learn from history. We can ask the past in order to help us today. In a recent article, there's a researcher whose name is Elizabeth Archibald. And she looks back at history and she pulls together after months of research, practical advice 
for those of us today that we might be able to learn from the past. And she provides hundreds of little pieces of practical advice of things that your grandmother's grandmother's grandmother used to know. Like, for example, in 1777, how to kill bedbugs. Here's how they did it in 1777. First, spread gunpowder beaten into small pieces about the crevices of your bed and fire it with a match and keep the smoke in. Do this for an hour or more and then keep the room closed for several hours. Practical advice for today for bed bugs. Anybody have bed bugs out there? Yes, thank you. If it's lice, maybe it means put it on your head. I don't know. Do you put it on your head? I don't know. What about, uh, okay, uh, 1538. How to recover from a dance mishap. You ready? When you fall, this is brilliant. When you fall, pick yourself up quickly and go back to finish the dance energetically and without complaining, it's all patrim patrola. And if you, I guess that's some old school way of saying keep with the beat. And if you don't get up, well, you will not be able to fall any further. <laughs> and there is nowhere else to go. And so just lie on the ground. 1538. How about 1579? How to avoid sickness. Whoever eateth two walnuts, two figs, 20 leaves of rue, R-E-W, somebody help me know what that means later, one grain of salt, one, one grain of salt, all stamped and mixed together, fasting. And how you do that fasting? I don't know. Um, maybe you fast before you do it. They shall be safe from poison and the plague of that day. Pretty good advice, huh? Practical advice from the past. What is it in the past that we can learn from for the present? I don't know about your family, but your family probably has stories of the past that they tell of how you help learn from the present. Parents will often say to their kids, listen, don't make the same mistake that we did. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is inviting the Corinthians to ask the past. And Paul is saying to the Gentile audience, primarily a Gentile audience, who knew only of the history of Israel through the oral teachings of the day, he is saying, I want to take you back, all the way back to when Israel was in the wilderness. Because you know what? Three times, he says, first in verse 1, for I don't want you to be unaware Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Just think about that. All that happened to Israel, Paul says, happened to them as an example to be a picture for the Corinthian church in the first century and for us today to learn from the past. So this morning we're going to ask the past. And what the past is going to tell us is there are five ways to ruin your life. That's what Paul says in the text. Five ways to ruin your life. And Paul, like a good Churchill, is saying, if you don't learn from the past, Corinth, Trinity, you will be doomed to repeat it. So let me just give you the five ways and then we'll talk about each of them before we see how Paul uses this 
to drive them again into something even more beautiful than any of these things ever could possibly imagine becoming. First, number one, verse six, don't desire evil. If you read the text, you'll find these are all the do nots. Do not. Don't desire evil, number one. Number two, don't serve false gods. Number three, don't indulge in sexual immorality. Number four, verse nine, don't put Christ to the test. And number five, verse 10, don't grumble. Now, each of these in the text are listed in the negative. And Paul says, don't do these things. And he's telling them, our forefathers did them and learned from them. So if this feels remote to you, Listen, I want you just to recognize that Paul is writing to a first century Gentile audience. And he is saying that this is your history, Gentiles. For all of those who place our faith in Christ, the Old Testament is your family history. Like what, what stories do you tell about your family history? Do you have stories that you tell about grandparents? There's, there's one story in my family that my, my mother likes to tell a lot. That her, her great-grandfather... His name was Charles Andrew Johnson, and he came over as a stowaway at 17 years old. He was born in 1845, died in 1921. And when he was 17, he signed the register at Ellis Island, and he came over, and the only thing he had was, were the clothes on his back and his Swedish Bible. And my mom loves to tell the story, or so the story goes. Like, what, what history in your family does your store, does, does, do you like to tell around your dinner table? Paul says that these are our forefathers. And if you love history, you have a lot of family history that you love to tell the tales of, wonderful. You get to add this to the list because the Old Testament is your history, friends. Like it's not written in there in order to put you to sleep on a Sunday morning or to bore you in Sunday school. It's your family history. And if it's your family history, don't you think we should know it? But we don't. And I don't say that to like, make you feel bad. I just say it because it's honest. Like a lot of us don't know the history of Israel. We started in Matthew and then we've never really read the Old Testament. But we've missed those beautiful 39 books. We should read it. It's all one story of God's redemptive plan for our life. And it is your story and it's mine. And if you're here in the room and you don't have a family history, you don't have a family, welcome. Yes, you do. We are your family. And this is your history. And if you're going to ask the past and learn from them, then you have to, first of all, learn the lessons that they did not learn. And the first one, Paul says, don't desire evil. Verse 5 says, nevertheless, with most of them, look at your text, with most of them, I love that, with most of them, God was not pleased. Excuse me? That's like a massive understatement. How many of them actually entered into the promised land? Two of all the people of Israel, Joshua and Caleb. But Paul says, with most of them, understatement, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us. Bodies strewn throughout the wilderness. And that happened so that you could learn from their mistakes. The J.B. Phillips English translation says that their corpses littered the desert, that they may be an example for us not 
to desire evil. The word picture for desiring evil is to crave something that you can't have. It's just out of reach. Mm. You just crave it. You just crave it. Just like Adam craved, craved to know. Eve craved to know knowledge between good and evil. She wanted it. Satan said, you could just be like God. He's hiding something from you. He's holding back goodness. Desire it. And she took it. Jesus says that desire itself is the sin in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, through chapter 7. And in our day and age, we desire evil. We, we push the boundaries of what God tells us to do, and we do things that are insane. And the insanity leads to an absurdity. And the absurdity leads to a legality. And the legality leads to immorality, which is rooted in profitability. When you don't have God's word to stand on, you make asinine decisions because you're basing it upon what the community of broken people think is right and what is wrong. Or you're going to base it on what your own feelings or experiences are of what is right and what is wrong. And that becomes insanity. You leave yourself in a room with no moral guidance and you will become your worst enemy. C.S. Lewis pictures hell as though people are get exactly what they want for all eternity. And what they want, he says, is that we want to be further and further away from our neighbors so that we start out in a city and then it becomes a suburb. Sorry, Tulsa. Then it becomes a suburb and then it gets pulled even further away so that, he says, Napoleon Bonaparte is so far away, you only see him muttering as he walks on his front porch miles and miles away from the nearest neighbor blaming everybody else for all eternity for everything that happened in the war. Our insanity becomes absurdity. We do absurd things that make no sense. Sometimes people will say to me, well, you know, the whole sexual revolution, sexual ethics stuff, you know, like it's, what's wrong? Okay, well, I just want to, okay, who sets the boundaries? Let's add some more letters and some more numbers to whatever sexual ethic you want to add. Where does it stop? I mean, if you're going to play, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a game that's going to end in a horrible place. Already has. Where does it stop? What is insane becomes absurd, and then it becomes legal, especially in this country. And then it becomes rooted, ultimately, not only in immorality but in profitability, because economics drives so much of the way that you and I behave. Cut corners at work, not a big deal. We are owned and dominated by the promise of profit. And it can, not always, not always, but it can seem to free you and it can also deeply enslave you. Heads up. Don't desire evil. Number one. Number two, don't serve false gods. In Corinth, serving false gods was like watching football today. You go through the gates of the football uh, stadium uh, in Norman or in Stillwater to watch the game or, or, or down at Chapman Stadium in Tulsa to watch the game. Well, for, for people of the first century, they would often serve false gods. It was just part of the cultural thing that you did. You brought food and you offered it to them. You might light a candle. You might, it was just part of the, it was part of the culture. And Paul says, don't serve false gods. Explicitly, 
or implicitly. And, and he references the story in Exodus in the wilderness where, remember, Moses goes on up. Remember in Exodus chapter 32, you know, Moses is up and he's at Mount Sinai and, and he's taking his time with God and they're sitting down, they're going, what is he doing? And they get bored. And they begin to take their earrings off and they begin to throw it and they begin to melt them and they begin to form a golden calf and they begin to worship. And Exodus 32, 6 says, the people sat down to eat and drink and then they rose up to play, which is a euphemism for they engaged in sexual acts. They rose up to play. They were bored. And so often in our culture, we're bored. We're bored in our marriages and so men go to look at pornography thinking it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. It will destroy your marriage. Women think it's not a big deal. I'm bored. I'm just going to, you know, and you begin to just dream and shop for the epinephrine hit and it consumes you. It's powerful. Don't serve false Gods Within one generation of those who made the golden calf, within one generation, they had all died because of God's punishment upon them for their disobedience. Three, if you want to ruin your life, not only desire evil, serve false gods. Number three, indulge in sexual immorality. I'm just telling you exactly what the text says. Right, this is, don't indulge in sexual immorality. Verse eight, you know, uh, somebody was telling me, you know, it's great that we don't have temple prostitutes running around town like they did in Corinth back in the day. Well, it's great. You, you know what? We just can't see it today. It's hidden. It's boys in their closet. It's girls who are dreaming about somebody else besides their husband. It is, you name it. It is, The popularity of coming out, which has just seemed to sweep so much of our day. It's the tip of the spear. It's the cutting edge. And the church's total inability to know how to respond to that. Whatever it may be, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't look down our nose at it. Because who's the biggest sinner in the room? Let me see everybody's hand. We are. And so therefore, if you want to ruin your life, though, you say, I don't care. I'm going to indulge in sexual immorality. And, and Paul tells the story in Numbers 25, when they disobeyed God. And he killed, killed 23,000. It's a rough number. 20, it says 24,000 in numbers. He's estimating. He's guessing what the number was. 24, 23,000 people died in a single day. And today, we're not dying from sexual immorality. We're not dying from martyrdom. We're not dying from, you know, in the old days, if you were persecuted for your faith, you went to the guillotine and they cut your head off. Today, you just get a little paper cut. You just get a little paper cut. And then you get another one, and 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 then you get weak, and you get faint and the pattern of your life catches up with you and you find yourself sitting in a pool of your own blood thinking, how in the world did I get this so close to death? It's because over time, over time, we have turned from God's word and we have made little decisions to just indulge ourselves just a little bit, but learn from God's righteous judgment upon 
Israel in the wilderness where 23,000 were slain in a single day because they refused to obey him. And they had a pattern of disrespect and self-autonomy in their heart that he did that for you and for me. Ask the past. And you may not like what she tells you, but it is for your instruction and for mine. Number four, verse nine. Don't put Christ to the test. At parazo, which usually means to test somebody in order for them to fail. It's a kind of, I'll show you God kind of attitude. I'm saved by grace. Great. Well, then stop me from drinking too much. I'm saved by grace. Great. Well, then prevent me. No, that don't be so arrogant. May it never be. Don't put Christ to the text the test. Don't say, well, I'll just indulge and if God is strong enough, he'll stop me. He's sovereign, isn't he? That's asinine. But yet that's what we often say to ourselves, and we often justify. That kind of arrogance will always get you more than you bargained for and it will come in ways that you do not expect. And some of you in this room know that from your own experience that you've shared with me. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. And therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They shall always go astray in my heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Because God the Father, Yahweh, is holy. He fully intends to execute his righteous judgments. All right, so there's four ways so far. Desire evil, serve false gods, indulge in sexual immorality, put Christ to the test. Number five, if, it just has a, if you have it, you know, you cleared the first four hurdles, then get ready for this one. Number five is grumble. Grumble. To grumble is to complain about your situation in life. And Israel's grumbling is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 2, and verse 36 of Numbers 14. And in every case in the Old Testament, when they grumbled, it was followed by a punishment from God. In Numbers chapter 16, there is a, there's a story about a man named Korah who was grumbling against Moses and his leadership and all the Levites. And it says, Moses sent to them and said, come up. And they said to him, we will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought us out of the land flown with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. That you have also made for yourself to be a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing of milk and honey. Look around. We're in the wilderness. You have not given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men too? We will not come up. And Moses says to them, did you forget that you were once making bricks without straw? Did you forget that you were once delivered from Pharaoh? Did you forget that once God made a promise to you that he was going to be faithful to his promise? Did you forget that? And so he gathers Korah and his family and he says to all of Israel in number 16, get away from Korah and from his family. And do you remember what happened? Underneath Korah and his tents, the earth opens up 
There's like, there's like, a, there's like an earthquake right there in that, in that acre of land and it swallows Korah and everybody who was in his family is swallowed up. And then Moses tells graphically that the earth closed back up as they could hear the screams of the families who died as the people of Israel ran. Like you want, you want to think, you want to wonder if God is holy? That happened. And it didn't just happen for Israel's sake, it also happened for yours. To warn you of these ways to ruin your life. And the Corinthians needed to hear this because they were cocksure of themselves. They had dallied with adultery, nothing happened. And Paul says, if you dally with it, nothing but disaster will come. Therefore, verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So, is there any good news in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians? We know how to ruin our life. What's Paul's point? Is he just trying to drive us to make us moralists, to not desire evil? to do these things so that we can become better people. No, Paul is making a point because he says there are resources for you that you do not take serious enough and they are here and they are right under your nose and you miss them. Notice what Paul says. Paul says there's better news. There's better way. That we are the ones upon whom the end of the ages has come. That is that we are the ones who live on this side of the cross and can look back at the resurrection. We're the ones who have resources that the people of Israel did not have because we get to see how God fulfilled his promise to Israel in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. God demonstrated his wrath that was pictured in the wilderness of Israel. He demonstrated his wrath upon Jesus so that we could be the Joshua and Caleb's that are brought into the promised land because of the work of the Messiah, the work of Jesus. You're Joshua and Caleb. Jesus, Yeshua, the name means Joshua. Jesus was the true one who entered the promised land so that we might be able to avoid these pitfalls if you would stop making the same mistakes and learn from the past. And Paul says that in light of Jesus being raised from the dead and he is risen, he is risen indeed. Therefore know that, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful, amen? God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation or that testing, same word that you, he used back for Jesus. Don't put Jesus to the test. Don't test Christ. Same word. Temptation can be a negative. It can be holding you back something. It could be, it could be, uh, uh, it could be a trial in your life. The testing, the temptation in this context could be the cancer that you're going through right now. It could be the difficult marriage situation you're going through right now. God is faithful in the midst of that. And he won't let you be tested beyond your control. He provides a way of escape for you. And what you're experiencing, I know you think you're special. But it's common to man. Israel has experienced the same thing. And then he gives us resources for how we can escape. Notice the resources that Paul had in mind. 
Notice verses one, verse one, second half of verse one. Our forefathers, again, it's our history. Our fathers were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. We have four historical and present resources to help us. The first one, he says, is the cloud. What was the cloud? What was the pillar of fire by night for Israel? Remember, they followed the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And it guided them through the wilderness, right? When the cloud stopped, they stopped. And when the pillar of fire moved, they, they moved even in the night. They, they followed the cloud and the pillar. It was God's divine guidance to us. And in the first century, the divine guidance was given to the churches through the 12 apostles. And what divine guidance do we have today? That's right. We have God's word. And wouldn't it be great if you had a pillar? Wouldn't it be great if you had a pillar of cloud to show you where to go? And a pillar of fire by night? Wouldn't that be amazing? It'd be amazing. Like, oh my gosh, what a miracle. And we just yawn. But like, we got it. Know it. Treasure it. Read it. Understand it. Uh, there, was a, there was one time early, uh, early in, in, in my ministry, there was a group of men who were going through elder training, and uh, um, uh, it wasn't here, so don't try to f figure out who it was. It wasn't here. But uh, there was a group of men, and, and there was a test, and we gave them a test, and the test was very simple, and it wasn't graded. Only the people who took the exam would actually see the exam. And their questions were questions like, okay, you're a Christian, great. Name the Ten Commandments in order. How many books are there in the Bible? Can you list them? Who are the 12 apostles? And, and one, one of the gentlemen in this room got very uncomfortable because he, he prided himself on knowledge and then he realized as he said then to answer the most basic questions about the Bible, he got up and he walked out of the room. And later I said to him, I hope that you didn't feel uncomfortable. You would be the only one that would see the answers to that, to that test. And he said, I was embarrassed. Even if nobody else saw it, I was embarrassed about how little of the Bible I actually knew. And I don't know about you, but I still am learning the Bible all the time. A seminary professor of mine said, it's, it's in a lifetime, you can only really master maybe even one book of the Bible. There's 66 of them. So it's okay if you don't know the Bible, but you know the best time to start is today, now. And so take the, take the book of John and just start by reading the book of John. And then come to AM Discipleship at 9 a.m., right? They're, we're all learning in that room together what the Bible teaches. And come and learn together. Take it. Read it. If you want to know how to do it in, in, a, in a more systematic way, please ask me. Ask your community group leader, but know what God's word says. He has given us his word. And like the Israelites had guidance of the cloud, we have guidance by his spirit through his word. Number one, you have the cloud, you have divine guidance, you have the word of God. It's a resource for you. Number two, you have the sea, which is a picture of baptism. It's startling when you read this text to see that, that you're baptized into Moses. And that's just simply saying that Moses led these people through the Red Sea. And all those who made it through the Red Sea 
were the ones who were separated from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Notice that there were children also who went through the Red Sea, right? Even the children of believers were part of Israel. They received the mark. They received the baptism. They went through. They were, they were, it was a mark of who is in. And in the same way, your baptism is a reminder to you, not of your faithfulness to God. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness to you. Baptism is a picture. We sprinkle people in our church. Not, we don't immerse them. We sprinkle them. Why? Because in every reference in the Bible, every reference in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is coming down, which was for a thousand years the way people did baptisms until 1521 when Conrad Grable baptized George Blaurock in the town square in Zurich. Did you know that? It comes down upon you. It's a picture of God's cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. It is a mark of his power upon your life. Remember your baptism? It was a picture of God's faithfulness to you. And then secondarily, if you professed faith, then it was also an opportunity for you to share that with the world. But it's about his faithfulness to you. Third, he says manna. Like he, he, manna was provided for them in the wilderness. Stay with me. This manna is God's provision. And today, we, we aren't giving white coriander seed to eat. We are giving the Lord's Supper to enjoy. It is God's manna to strengthen us in the wilderness today. Come to the table, all ye who are heavy laden and burdened, and Jesus will give you rest. You have the Lord's table. Use the time of worship in the, when you come to the Lord's table to assess your heart. And there may be some weeks when you shouldn't come to the Lord's table because you're harboring sin, you're desiring evil, you're, you're making a mockery of Jesus. But there should also be times when you bring your doubts to that table because that's where Jesus wants to meet you. It's not a table for perfect people, it's a table for sinners who know they've been saved by grace. You have the Lord's Supper. It is called spiritual food. Manna wasn't... Uh, it was real. The word spiritual there just means it was a reflection of heaven's provision for you. It was God provided, just like the cloud, just like the parting of the Red Sea. And last, he uses this imagery in this text of the rock. Do you see that? Now, where in the Bible does it talk about the rock following the people of Israel around? I don't know. Second opinions, maybe. I don't know. It doesn't say it. It doesn't say that the rock followed the people of Israel around, but it was a well-known story of the day that there was a rock that followed the people of Israel around because twice in the wilderness, Moses struck the rock and from the rock, it provided water. And so the Jews had a story where the rock actually, and so Paul draws on this story in the first century to say that rock that followed them in the wilderness, so which scripture doesn't, doesn't explicitly say that it did, but Paul's using that commonly known story to say that rock was Christ. And your greatest satisfaction and your greatest thirst is always quenched because of what Jesus has done done for you, his presence and his power. Often in the Old Testament, Yahweh would be called the rock in Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 18. But here, Paul gives that title to Christ. And when John Calvin was writing on this verse, he said that you have the bread of God, the presence of God, the baptism of God, and the strength of the word of God all right here. And Paul is illustrating for us the resources. And so listen to me, please. If you are caught in sexual immorality, if you desire evil, if you're just wrapped up in complaining and grumbling, if you're serving false gods, you don't have to anymore. 
possible to look at God's word and say, it's going to take everything in me to obey it, Jesus, but would you help me? I don't place my faith in my own desires. I place my faith in your finished work. And I will run to it even, even if I have doubts. And when you come to the table in a moment, you come to the table celebrating that he is with you. That Jesus is the rock from which you are most deeply satisfied. These resources of God's word, of baptism in the church, of the Lord's table and worship, and of the presence of Christ among his people, these are our resources to draw from. So go to community groups. Come to worship. Invest into the church because this is where God is. I can't explain it, but God's word says it. And you know it from your experience that it's real and it's true. And so rather than five ways to ruin your life, here are four historical ways to see God's provision for your life with him. Would that we had eyes to learn from the lessons of history. Oh, Jesus, would you help us to continue to ask the past and to look to your word, to learn from our forefathers of the faith and remind us, oh, Father in heaven, that your son, Jesus Christ, had indeed learned from the past. And because he learned from the past, he defeated it and he beat history for us so that we who are born in sin might be delivered from our sin. May it be so, O Father, we pray. Just as you provided the mark of baptism to encircle us, just as you provided spiritual food to nourish us, you give us your continual grace through the satisfying and refreshing work of your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.